You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you're a frequent listener, I want to let you know about listener support for All Things Video. I often joke that doing this podcast is my favorite way I lose money every month. There's a lot of time and hard work that goes into producing each episode and hiring a professional editor to make them sound great. It really is a labor of love, so I'm happy to do it, but we'd really appreciate your contributions to help improve future episodes. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation, please visit anchor.fm slash all dash things dash video slash support. And we'll include that link in the show notes. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Eric Peckham, creator of the Monetizing Media Newsletter and a media columnist at TechCrunch. Eric, welcome to the show. James, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat here. Yeah, same here. I wanted to start by just kind of getting an understanding of how you uh, started out in the media and entertainment space. Yeah, I, uh, I stumbled into my current role a little bit, which is my background was being kind of a generalist in the startup world. So I had, out of college, I'd focused on kind of education and also kind of startup-related things um, in college, ended up at a big education startup, then left um, as they went public worked at a family office that was kind of a mix of investing and incubating this media startup concept, moved to LA, enjoyed a VC firm here. Then that led into kind of different consulting projects, working with different companies and individuals who wanted to have a better pulse in the startup world. And uh, so there's this whole kind of range of things across the startup space. Ultimately, I decided I wanted to focus in one area. And I've always been fascinated by media and the whole notion of how do you shape hearts and minds in society. And so had started monetizing media, this daily newsletter is kind of a side project that took off more than it expected. And so off of that, TechCrunch reached out and um, I have this incredible role now, which is basically, you know, getting to track all the interesting companies at the forefront of media and entertainment and um, the gaming world, try and have a pulse on it for TechCrunch and then be able to, you know, interview people to kind of write about the key trends I'm seeing. And so it's an exciting position to be in. You know, I'm part of, most of my writing is part of our new premium tier at TechCrunch, which focuses on uh, analysis and interviews. So I'm separate from the reporting team, which is great to be able to step back a little bit and look at kind of bigger picture trends. And why startups? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I always, I grew up as a big political nerd um, and I loved volunteering on political campaigns. And you know, when I actually got to college, I was studying political science. I spent my first summer in DC realized that politics maybe wasn't as uh, as exciting uh, of a, a path to go down. And so was reflecting and realized that really what I loved was the entrepreneurial aspect of like someone coming out of nowhere, starting something new, rallying a bunch of people together. Ended up meeting different people in the startup world, got the startup bug and, and just kind of fell in love with the idea that, you know, you can start something small that very quickly becomes a huge company and changes the way we do something. So you start as an operator and then kind of move over to looking at the space through a broader lens as an analyst. What were the lessons that you learned when you were boots on the ground working in startups? What, what was that experience like? What were the, the takeaways that you learned? Yeah, I mean, I think even in in my operational roles, it was very, you know, very focused on kind of wearing an entrepreneurial hat and kind of partnerships and strategy. Uh, and so I think for me, A, it was this realization of how hard it is on one hand to break through, especially if you're in a position of trying to strike partnerships with kind of large old school institutions, um, whether it was in education or kind of my main project at, at Adventures was 
this platform where uh, we were trying to sell to large media companies. And so part of it was just realizing how much you really have to craft your pitch and craft a really strong sense of where you fit in the market and who who's actually going to be your kind of champion within bigger organizations if you're selling to bigger organizations, Yeah, uh, which can take time to figure out. So let's dive into some of the topics you cover for TechCrunch. You recently spoke at the first Virtual Being Summit, and you've written at length about that topic. For those unfamiliar, what are virtual beings? Yeah, so virtual beings, and I, I kind of critique this term in, in my post after the conference, because um, I think it conflates a few different things, but it's just this whole notion that we're at a point now, in large part thanks to developments in artificial intelligence, where we can have human-like beings uh, who are not human, that are part of our kind of entertainment or our interactions. And so um, there are a few different things this could look like. You know, one of the common kind of subsets of this, and where there's been a bunch of venture investment and a bunch of entrepreneurship, is virtual influencers. You know, having kind of celebrities or influencers on social media and other spaces who are fictional characters that interact and, and you know, build real relationships. You know, virtual beings is also voice interfaces and potentially robotics where, you know, whether it's kind of an improved version of Alexa or, you know, thinking of movies like Her or Ex Machina, where we have these kind of um, these AIs that become part of our life, whether it's more of a utilitarian uh, use case, helping us get things done, or more for entertainment or kind of companionship, friendship. And then the last piece is a bit more on the graphic side of being able to make things look real, look human, um, even if they're not. And so there's a bunch of fascinating use cases, whether it's within kind of special effects and gaming of creating characters without actually needing an actor or a real person, or repurposing the image of someone so you can kind of keep using their character without actually needing them to be doing the acting or moving. I think we've already seen some major motion pictures that you know, in, in a situation in which an actor is not available to finish shooting or you know, some have passed away, they can use that type of technology to still include them in the film. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm not sure if, if actors should be scared or excited about this. I've, <laughs> I've heard arguments on, on both sides. I think um, it's certainly exciting in terms of the types of content you can produce um, flexibility around production of content and budget and other things. We're still very early in it, and this is still kind of a novel concept that's being experimented with. You know, CGI obviously isn't new in the film world, but I think being able to replace characters uh, with these kind of virtual beings who are able to act on their own and look truly lifelike um, is pretty exciting. And, and I think that kind of drives at the point that one of your your overall thesis in your writing is that the future of entertainment is largely interactive, right? Whether that's gaming, motion pictures, new technologies, AR, VR, everything is kind of driving towards these uh, more experiential entertainment events. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm i not a, a kind of hardcore gamer, um, but I have been fascinated. The more I get into interactive entertainment and gaming, the new companies that are being built there, and not just in core gaming, but what people from gaming are kind of leaving the space to do. Um, I have this underlying thesis around, you know, the future of media is interactive. I'm working on this, uh, this series about Unity and Unreal, the big game engines, and the notion that the game engines are eating the world as a playoff of Mark Andreessen software is eating the world, where, you know, as someone who spends a ton of time talking to executives and entrepreneurs across 
kind of the full breadth of the media landscape. What's clear to me is talking to folks in traditional media or what I think of as digestible media, uh, non-interactive media, it's a lot of kind of feeling a bit in in stasis or, or pause of like everyone's trying to figure out how we make things work better um, or find opportunities. Whereas when you spend time with people in the interactive space, it's like you feel the market pulling you forward. There's so much momentum, so much consumer interest. And so it's clear to me that both in terms of what consumers are doing, the way technology is developing, things are becoming a lot more interactive. The game engine's point is, is particularly fascinating because you've seen this shift towards you know, whether it's a game environment like Roblox or Minecraft. And then you've got uh, experiences like Fortnite, which uh, wasn't just one particular game. Of course, it's Battle Royale and you had precursors and antecedents, but the Fortnite environment that it created, the fact that you can have a marshmallow concert in the Fortnite world, they're, they're thinking about it as a platform to create those interactive experiences with the fans, not just you know a single game, not a digestible experience in the sense of traditional gaming where you would you know play against ai or you'd play with your friends in a multiplayer environment you're you're talking about creating these immersive interactive experiences in this online world yeah absolutely i mean i think you know, one way to think about it is if something is interactive it means the audience member the player the user they're providing inputs um, so they're not just sitting back consuming and if you're providing inputs into something you're investing into it where you know there are lots of different types of interactive experiences and maybe some have a multiplayer social network aspect and so they get network effects based on that where it just makes more sense to stay in that one environment and keep investing in it but even if there isn't that kind of social aspect you're building things in a lot of these interactive experiences right and so it's kind of it makes sense to keep building off of what you've already done rather than starting from scratch elsewhere or you know your inputs in one way or another have helped personalize the experience to you, where it just becomes a much more enjoyable experience than if you're using a game, a technology, where you basically have to retrain the model on who you are and what you like. So outside of gaming, what are some of the other industries where you're seeing interactive uh, experiences you know, take hold or become the norm? Yeah, so I think um, when people hear interactive media, they think of gaming in a very traditional sense, which is how that term has been used. I think it's so much faster these days and so a lot of you know the kind of buckets i think of with interactive media aside from just core gaming are i think you're seeing it in traditional video streaming which has been kind of a, a big push over the last year in particular from a lot of companies in that space there's an interesting field of these kind of mobile native video-based storytelling all sorts of different apps both from big companies and, and new startups really interesting use of some of the new social platforms like Twitch and Discord as the basis for media companies creating content through them. Voice interfaces, obviously, like Alexa and Google Home and people building uh, games specific to that environment. And then you have, of course, the kind of AR VR realm, which um, is in a little bit of a, a lull right now after a big surge of investment and a lot of things uh, not taking off as quickly as, as people hoped, but is a space that continues to develop really quickly. Um, and have a lot of entrepreneurs building content. Why do you think that is? Is the AR, VR enthusiasm just cyclical and that it kind of heats up, cools down? Is the technology not there? Is the software not there? What, what's the issue holding it back? Yeah, I think um, it's it's mostly a technology issue. Um, and then also, particularly in VR, a an issue of lack of content. Um, because you're not just layering something over the existing world. You have to actually create an entirely new world, which is 
uh, a big investment in terms of content creation. Um, and you have the cash 22 of, well, people don't want to buy VR headsets unless there's tons of content to use, but it doesn't make sense to invest in the content unless there's a lot of users. And so that space has faced challenges there. But I think both in AR and VR, it's just been a lot of the technology hasn't quite been good enough to be as enjoyable of an experience as people envision when they talk about it. But we're getting a lot closer. And it seems like there's probably more immediate opportunity for AR applications. And it extends beyond gaming. Of course, you had you know the Pokemon Go craze. And, and I think Niantic thought they were going to capture lightning in a bottle again with the Wizards Unite app. But I just don't think that really got yeah, to the happen. same level of enthusiasm. But it seems like outside of that gaming use case, you probably have more utilitarian applications of the technology for things like shopping, right? How could AR technology revolutionize the retail experience or travel or, you know, some of these other um, industries? Maybe it could be used in medicine. Do you think that outside of media entertainment, do you think about those additional applications for this technology? Yeah, I think I think the applications are vast, right? Where you're talking about with AR and VR, I think it's the same with voice interfaces, is whole new operating systems, right? Of, of kind of how we had the mobile wave, for example, right? I think it, it creates a whole new slate of kind of use cases and business opportunities across every industry. And so I think it's incredibly exciting. Um, I try and limit myself to there's so many possible things to, to explore there to how will these technologies shape kind of the media, entertainment, gaming realm. But even there, I think, you know, it's not just about consumption of content like playing games or or participating in a story, um, I think they're fascinating tools for the creation of content as well, which is all of a sudden, you know, you're able to, like, with your hands, be building the, like, the game that someone is going to play or build the environments that you're going to have an animated film in or using your voice as a, uh, a tool and commanding of, like, where you want different parts of your virtual set to go. And so it's truly fascinating. And really, the companies at the cutting edge of this in terms of providing the tools have been uh, the game engines. So um, Unreal, which is owned by Epic Games, the creator of Fortnite, uh, and then Unity Technologies. And they both started as platforms for building games, but expanded uh, far beyond it to kind of building all sorts of interactive uh, environments. So moving on, one of the other central themes in your work is this idea of media industry realignment and how it tends to favor incumbents rather than startups, which to me actually seems like a shift from you know prior generations. And maybe part of that is that the rate of innovation and in technology has accelerated. Uh, but I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts. What are the driving forces behind it? And what are the market forces at play that are, that are driving that fact? Yeah, I mean, look, I think part of it is... Um, Content is expensive to create if you actually want to create something really high quality that breaks out from the noise. I mean, part of the challenge of you know, the internet opened up the opportunity for everyone to be able to create content. The challenge is everyone is able to create content. And so there's so much noise to sift through. And actually being able to get above the noise requires that much bigger of an investment and gives a, a kind of um, strong preference towards folks who have already built something that has the distribution that kind of has broken above the noise. And so, you know, this is why you see where this in film and kind of this strong focus on continuing franchises rather than launching new films is it's just easier once you've already broken through to keep like to stick with that audience, stick with that topic and keep expanding on it. Music is kind of a fascinating own world and its dynamics where um, on one hand, we are seeing this kind of 
middle class or broad landscape of niche stars growing um, and the market share of, kind of the top like 50 songs in the world declining on streaming. But it's still very dominantly like the top songs in the world are what most people listen to. I think it's the top 50,000 songs account for about 70, 75% of all streaming. Wow. Um, which on one hand seems like a lot, but when you break that down to all the different genres and the fact that that's, you know, that's not the top 50,000 songs from this year, it's from all time. There's actually not a whole ton of uh, kind of small artists breaking through. Well, I want to circle back to the music industry because I know you've spent a lot of time, particularly recently in that space, but uh, I guess one of the things that occurs to me in thinking about media industry realignment is that you know, the early internet players, when you think about like the portal companies, Yahoo, AOL, did not survive successive generations of, of innovation, right? That you had the search players, many of whom are still around, then you had social and mobile. And so we don't see that growth of new startups eclipsing the incumbents as much as we used to. It just seems that Google, Amazon, Facebook acquire a lot of those startups. And so there's less room. And I don't know if that's a funding dynamic and, and public market issue that people are shying away from IPOs, staying private longer, there's more private money available. I don't know if it's a, a, a political issue. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that, particularly given your, your uh, political background and interests. Do you observe a similar pattern that just companies are having a harder time growing to that mega scale and competing against the incumbents? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the incumbents have such a strong advantage in terms of capital. Right now, if, if it has anything to do with um, kind of technology and digital media, we're talking about the largest companies in the world that have tens of billions in cash on their balance sheet. And so certainly they buy up a lot of interesting startups that maybe otherwise would have become competitors. But you know, part of it too is this challenge, both from a business perspective and increasingly it's being talked about in politics, which is the internet has created a lot of winner-take-all or at least winner take most dynamics where there's one or you know three companies that completely dominate a market globally um, and it's so tough for anyone to break through and so you know when you're talking about creating a space that that they already dominate it's next to impossible to to kind of really break through now i, I think it depends on your role in the market like i think if you're trying to create a new streaming video platform um, that is a brutally difficult path to take right now. Um, I think if you're creating incredible content that sells to streaming platforms, their intense competition against each other is uh, fantastic for you because they're spending tons of money competing for the top content. And so I think it depends where you are in the ecosystem. But I think you know, we're already seeing a lot of calls, and it's interesting that it's, it's rather bipartisan right now, at least in the United States, um, a lot of calls to reconsider how we approach antitrust, given that our antitrust laws are from a past era, which is focused on kind of manufacturing and mm -hmm. other types Physical of Physical inventory, everything else, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you think that uh, something's likely to happen? Uh, obviously, in the Democratic debates, there's been quite a lot of uh, discussion among it, and Elizabeth Warren in particular has kind of taken up the mantle and, and calling out some of the big tech companies in particular about some of these anti-competitive forces. Uh, but, you know, what's the political reality? Is this going to happen? It seems like fewer things happen at the legislative level in general anymore because of more bipartisanship and because of issues in the Senate in particular. Is it going to take judicial action or executive orders to, to make a change? Or is it just going to get clogged up in the political system and, and status quo will remain? It remains to be seen, honestly. I, I, think, um, I do think we will see a wave of antitrust action against the big tech companies. You know, what exactly it looks like, what they demand to be broken apart, how successful they are, I think 
remains to be seen. But I do think it's clear looking at Europe, looking at the U.S., there's fairly broad consensus across the political spectrum that um, these companies are hindering a lot of kind of entrepreneurial opportunity are too strong, and particularly companies that, you know, thinking of like the social media companies as opposed to, say, Netflix, who inherently wield a power over communications and public discourse in a way that leads to all these debates around, you know, influence in elections, et cetera. So I, I do think it's coming. What exactly it looks like, you know, we'll see. Um, but I think part of the challenge for politicians to weigh is that even if they take action, right, if, if there was a lot of antitrust action against the big U.S. tech companies, China is not taking that action, right? And we exist in a global market. So do you end up shooting yourself in the foot in the sense of we make American companies less competitive globally because, you know, Chinese competitors like Tencent and ByteDance and Alibaba just continue to grow and dominate. And for the first time, these tech entrepreneurs, the CEOs of these companies are lionized, right? You see Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg in the news, you know, they're commanding headlines at a level of celebrity more so than many actors and musicians some, in some cases. And they have these global audiences. So now, you know, they in some cases are weaponizing that audience against the political machine in their campaign to advocate for their business interests. We saw this in particular in YouTube's efforts to combat the EU copyright directive, right? Saying, hey, this is going to ban memes. This is going to you know, limit your ability as a creator to produce content and, and distribute it on our platform, much of which seemed like a campaign of misinformation. But you know, that's what the political systems are up against now is the fact that these global platforms have a lot of respect and enthusiasm from their audience, and they're turning that against lawmakers. Yeah, well, I, I will say, I think we've gone through a shift of these entrepreneurs as celebrities to these entrepreneurs as supervillains to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't think they have the same halo effect that they did a few years ago, in part because society is waking up to a lot of the challenges that these platforms bring, which is inherently if you're a platform that shapes the way people communicate, has whether it's some sort of editorial role or algorithms that shape that, people are going to be unhappy about that. And so we're kind of waking up to some of the ethical challenges that come with um, having companies this big. And so, yeah, I, th I think what's interesting actually is for so long, people kind of in the U.S. and the U.S. tech space were so quick to trash talk efforts by the EU to focus on like uh, data privacy or, um, you know, a lot of the fines they laid out against big tech companies. Um, and what's interesting is it, it turns out they were actually kind of right in that these are very serious issues that we have to think about. We can't just assume that because it's technology, it's always going to be used for good things and will always work out. And so it's, it's interesting to see a shift back where a lot of U.S. politics and discussion around technology uh, is actually um, kind of mirroring or a few years behind the discussion amongst European lawmakers. No, I completely agree. It seems like uh, the U.S. used to be a leader and now lags behind you know, Europe, and the policies they're enacting are now influencing the policies that hit the floor here in the U.S., and I think it's you know for the best. There, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be some balances between you know, the, the public sector and the policy decisions of lawmakers and then the private decisions enacted by the tech companies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think... To, in a way, kind of going full circle back to the notion of interactive media as a future, I think some of the the big tech companies and social apps, streaming services, are going to face a bunch of barriers over the next few years. And a lot of the opportunity in terms of uh, exciting new types of content to create or room for startups to rise up 
is going to be a bit more on the cutting edge when we're talking about different types of interactive media, whether it's kind of the AR VR space and it having resurgence, you know, exploring what a voice first um, kind of entertainment or media business looks like or any number of other opportunities. So let's circle back to your earlier point about the music space. What does the future of music look like? What are some of the companies to watch? What are some of the, the things happening in the music industry? Look, I think the future of the music industry looks a lot like the presence of the music industry, to be honest. I think it's a very tough space in terms of entrepreneurship or driving new things because what I think a lot of people don't realize is music is a heavily regulated industry. It's kind of governed by lawyers. <laughs> and so the entire basis of the music industry is you know, you're creating content that has copyright and then you're monetizing that through the payment of royalties. And obviously there are other ways, like people also do concerts and merchandise, et cetera. But in terms of the pure music industry, it's about copyright law, which that law is still built on you know the laws that were passed decades ago. Um, it hasn't been updated for a streaming era. And so you have a very overly complex system with a lot of different kind of middleman stakeholders along the way. Um, a lot of countries have, there are these collection societies that are in charge of tracking the use of copyright and then collecting the royalties and distributing it accordingly. Um, in a lot of countries, they have a kind of government-issued monopoly, but they're a complete black box that are very behind on technology, um, and there's no transparency on the money coming in and the decisions in terms of money coming out. There are a lot of fraud scandals constantly with these. You know, and I do see there are some changes happening there. There's a company out of London called Cobalt that's raised about $200 million from Google Ventures and others. Um, it's a 20-year-old company now. It's kind of um, a, a slow startup in a sense, but it's been pushing a lot of change of kind of having, uh, having royalties flow directly from streaming services to one centralized, uh, much more transparent collection society that, that sends it to all the relevant artists. So I think that side is interesting. You know, there's a rush in the music industry of different services for basic distribution of music, right? So anyone who wants to upload their music to the different streaming services and basic kind of label services in terms of like, how can you get marketing or other resources that a record label would traditionally offer, but more on an a la carte basis, it's kind of just renting it as a service. But again, the, you know, the thing is the top artists in the world still dominate um, the industry. The record labels are actually very healthy. You know, they've seen their profits and revenue soar. So I don't see a ton of fundamental change happening in music. Well, in a sense, the music industry had to innovate because the revenue fell off a cliff due to online piracy. And now they've seemed to blaze a trail for what happened in TV and then ultimately what happened in motion pictures. But you're right. Now we're seeing more a la carte service offerings, and we're also seeing more direct-to-fan monetization. Is that something that you've looked closely at? You know, what does the future of monetization look like? Because there's more now subscription models, there's more merchandise sales, direct-to-fan monetization methods. How is that impacting both the music industry and beyond? I have a very strong belief across the media landscape that you need your audience to, um, in some way or another, pay for the contents. I'm quite bearish on advertising-dependent businesses, uh, especially in terms of something that becomes a long-term sustainable business. It's just very skewed incentives from being a content creation company if your actual customers are advertisers. You know, in music, it, it's interesting. I did a big report back in Q1 on uh, the company Patreon, which focuses on uh, helping independent content creators online create these membership businesses for their core fans uh, who you know pay some amount of money every month, and then there's kind of rewards 
for that, which is like special access to discussion groups, maybe exclusive content, et cetera. And this is taking off across, I mean, obviously in the publishing world, in you know, with streaming services and video, there's a big focus on subscriptions and a lot of consolidation because of that into a small number of kind of big bundled uh, services. Music is interesting where uh, we really haven't seen big musicians focus on any sort of membership or subscription product. I'm working on a project right now with a great music industry journalist named Cherry Hu, um, where we've gone through and for kind of 60 of the top artists in the world, we've been tracking for several months, um, like their use of newsletters and text messaging services, their different marketing strategies. And really, it, it's kind of, they just use social media to the extent that they have newsletters. They don't send like anything through them. There's very little focus on trying to engage your core fan base and pull them into some sort of deeper um, experience that they pay for. And so, you know, it, it's fascinating to see that that hasn't taken off there. And I think there are a number of reasons why. But I do expect over the next few years, as a few of those musicians experiment and find success, it will cause more to follow. Yeah, it also feels like that leads to better ways to price discriminate. How do you effectively monetize the super fans when at a certain point, you know, if you love Taylor Swift, all that you can really do is listen to her songs more times on Spotify, go to her concert a few times a year, maybe when it's in your area, buy some merchandise, but then you kind of hit a spending cap. If there were these programs, more fan experiences, more digital environments in which you can uh, interact with and then monetize that fan base, that gives you more earning potential, it seems. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, where price discrimination happens in music is in uh, concert ticket sales. Mm-hmm. It, you know, that's kind of the core of when people talk about how do you better monetize your core fans. But that's still very limiting. Even if you're one of the biggest stars in the world and millions of people will attend your concerts on a tour, what you're talking about there is, A, it's one very particular type of experience of how to engage with you, but it also is such a, a restrictive sense of like to be a core fan and buy the, like, the better tickets, et cetera, is to be wealthy like the prices even for not great seats at a lot of these concerts is you know hundreds of dollars and so it's really challenging and it's a one-off transaction right when you only tour right you do a tour for like a year and a half every uh like three years maybe and so yeah i think the opportunity is how do you create some sort of special kind of core community that people i I think part of this is not thinking about how can you get people to pay, but how can you make people want to pay, be proud to kind of pay and be a member of a core community around your music and the content you create. I think the challenge for a lot of the big musicians is just this balance of everything's an opportunity cost. And, you know, if they can reach so many millions of people with a normal social media post, why take that and restrict it to a smaller group of people? Yeah, a lot of it too is just musicians they're not optimizing for business or kind of revenue. They obviously want to make money and do well, but for a lot of them, they care more about kind of the fame aspect in a way and doing what's cool and being, you know, on the social apps. They like, they're as addicted as anyone else to posting and seeing how many people like it and comparing that to their past posts and other people's posts, seeing which celebrities liked, you know, this post, et cetera. And so there's a psychology element there, which is also a barrier to them taking some content or experiences and restricting it to just core fans. Switching gears, let's talk about the future of the streaming video space and and the current streaming wars. 
the pendulum seems to be shifting yet again. You know, for a while, many people were copying the Netflix model of everything to everybody. Uh, you see HBO and Amazon kind of trying to play to that strategy. But now you've got Disney Plus entering in November, and they seem to say, no, we're back focused on niche specialty programming. And obviously, it's a pretty broad category, kids and family, Marvel. You know, they, they hit a lot of the, the pretty big segments. But they're, they're saying, you know, we're going to focus on a pretty narrow content library and and at a lower price point, you know, it seems to be able to attract uh, a large audience. What do you think is going to happen as these new entrants emerge? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't describe Disney's play as um, as niche because it's it's really three streaming services that they're bundling together. Sure. And so, um, yeah, Disney well, obviously you, is very... incorporate Hulu and, and ESPN, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, which they own all of those. They're all part of one united strategy. They're kind of being brand conscious there. And obviously Disney has a very kind of family oriented history and library of content. And so, um, and if you're going to have, uh, yeah, I think the play of a niche streaming service is really tough. Um, they haven't really worked out. The one area where there is an obvious kind of need and desire to have completely separate experiences and content is when you get into children watching where, you know, you don't want them to be on the same platform with a lot of other shows that so would, wouldn't be appropriate. And so, you know, Disney is kind of playing the whole field in a way, right? It has um, Hulu, which is kind of all general entertainment and adult um, sorts of entertainment shows, ESPN Plus, which would be very sports, and then um, Disney for more family-oriented content and kind of Marvel and, and the superheroes. Um, obviously, Hulu um, TV Live as well for kind of a whole live package. And so they're kind of bundling everything. But I do think, you know, this is going to be a game of a consumer will have maybe three streaming services they pay for. So maybe there are kind of five or six or so that are in contention at all with, you know, one or two very dominant um, leaders. You know, I think Netflix is going to be there. Disney is likely to be there. Amazon is kind of already there because so many people are already subscribers for Amazon Prime. And so, I, you know, I just see that space as staying very consolidated. I think we'll see some more players, a lot of, you know, you're seeing in um, Europe, a lot of the large um, media companies in each country are kind of starting to collaborate to offer a, at least at a national level um, a strong alternative. But yeah, I, I think you know there is a benefit here, which is as these large consolidated uh, streaming subscriptions grow, they kind of saturate in terms of like a general audience or whatever, and their growth comes from appealing to more niche demographics. Um, and so there actually is incentive for them to create more niche content that appeals to whether it's, you know, people in countries that are small markets or um, other sort of niche groups where they know that if they just create a few shows for those people, that will get them as subscribers and they'll start enjoying other content too and stay. Uh, what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the media and entertainment space, what would they be? So A, the future of media is interactive. I, I really believe that. And it seems obvious in a lot of the data in terms of who's making money, where a lot of consumers are starting to turn, the adoption a lot of uh, um, kind of devices for uh, interactive experiences. I think that's key. Um, I think the future of media is a lot of people paying in one way or another for content or for access to the experience or participating in the experience. So I think you know, I would look at kind of the sphere of in-game purchases in gaming, which is like, you know, you're paying for whether it's like extra coins that you don't have to earn or, you know, new clothing for your character or whatever else. I think that sort of notion is going to expand a lot beyond just 
games to any sort of interactive experience. You're already seeing this with some of the like interactive voice entertainment experiences where there's aspects of it that you can pay for um, you know, some of the interesting mobile native storytelling experiences like Company in London Unread where you know, there's a whole interactive story you can go through without paying, but if you want you know, certain aspects of it or like special parts of it, you have to pay. So I think I know, I'm bullish on people paying in one form or another for content and that direct relationship. And then, hmm, what's the last one? I, I would say government matters again in media. You know, media has actually always been fairly heavily regulated. Uh, and we kind of went through this period, particularly from you know the 90s to the last few years, where with the internet, it was kind of everything could go everywhere. There was very little regulation on what content is created and where it goes and all that. And I think what's happened is kind of politicians in society waking up and realizing Actually, there are a lot of the same issues that existed as before, and both as a consumer protection mechanism, as a desire for censorship by different actors in, in politics in different countries, we're going to see government regulation much more central in the field of media and influencing what companies can and can't do. I like it. Media will be interactive. People are going to pay, and government's getting back involved. Uh, what does the future hold for you and for the work that you're doing through TechCrunch and monetizing media? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm continuing to dig into these topics. There's, you know, in the scope of, of what we talked about, there's no shortage of new trends or interesting companies to dig into. And so I think for me, I want to spend a lot more time and a lot of my focus over the rest of this calendar year is on this this kind of space of interactive media where I want to do a better job highlighting some of the trends, the companies, the opportunities in it, and be able to bridge for whether it's kind of executives and people in, in more traditional entertainment or um, for entrepreneurs trying to understand the space and figure out opportunities, or even for people a bit more from a policy side and, and kind of like looking at influence media has on society to be able to better articulate what's coming down the pipeline. Very cool. We'll stay tuned for that. One of the questions I ask everyone who comes on the show, and that's, I ask it because a lot of entrepreneurs listen in is if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? Oh man, that's a big question. Um, hmm. So I have a background in ed tech and education. Like I spent my summers in college um, teaching. I've always been fascinated with, with education. And so for me, this hybrid of, of kind of where learning and media align and then adding in kind of what I see as the future, which is interactive media, I'm very interested in, yeah, I, I would spend time digging around in terms of kind of AR, voice interfaces, some of these new interactive formats across different areas. How can you create a really compelling, exciting learning experience? A, because I just care a lot about finding new ways to kind of teach people, unlock knowledge, but also you know, educational content is a type of content people are much more willing to pay for because they see an ROI. And so I think uh, it's much stronger as a business opportunity as well. Very cool. Makes sense. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah. I mean, so uh, monetizing media, monetizingmedia.com, my newsletter. Yeah, I, I kind of share everything I write across any place, whether it's TechCrunch or elsewhere, through the newsletter and lots of kind of shorter commentary, um, lots of resources, et cetera, through the newsletter. So that's the best place. I'm at epeckham, P-E-C-K-H-A-M, on Twitter. Um, I'm not the most active user, but I, I do try and see what people are saying and engage. Terrific. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been very insightful. And uh, it's great to think about what does the future of media hold from an interactivity standpoint, from 
uh, gaming, esports, to motion pictures, you know, new technologies. Uh, it's great to get your perspective. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another episode of All Things Video. If you have any questions or suggestions for future content, please send us an email at allthingsvideopodcast at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. Thank you.